With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. This year, the 4th of July is a day of special celebration. For we are emerging from the darkness of years, a year of pandemic and isolation, a year of pain, fear, and heartbreaking loss. Just think back to where this nation was a year ago. Think back to where you were a year ago. And think about how far we've come. Well, that was the President of the United States giving us all the same uh, exclamation we're going to make here. Hackaroos, happy 4th of July. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you had some barbecue, a lot of fun with families, a lot of red, white, and blue, and probably some fireworks. So our... Our enthusiastic, you can do it to those of you now missing a finger or two. But uh, it was a tremendous holiday. I'm up in the free state in New Hampshire where we, we do make a big thing out of it. And I got to ask you, Gibbs, how'd you celebrate the 4th? You know, Murphy, I was in Colorado uh, where uh, the weather was wonderful, uh, some nice long bike rides. And uh, I-, I must say, uh, it is, it's just nice to feel some sense of normalcy again, to have... Um, the, the activities that we know we missed a year ago, uh, back on our calendar. So, uh, very exciting. Ah, excellent. Sounds like fun for the Gibbs clan. And again, to celebrate normalcy, we knew there was only one thing to do, which is get the most abnormal guests we possibly could. Our old friend of the podcast, uh, a great pundit, uh, you know, still an academic, a thoughtful guy and a dear old friend of mine. The one, the only Bill Crystal is with us today. Hey, Bill, how'd you spend the fourth? It's great to be with you both. I spent the fourth in a normal way at home with family, <laughs> who uh, luckily two of our kids and spouses and their little kids live nearby, so that was very nice. But you no, know, some of I, you guys are jet setting, or you know, the private jets to Colorado and New Hampshire. It's it's an, it's I admire it. You know, as a, as an old fashioned free market guy, you guys uh, deserve that lap of luxury stuff. I'm just sitting here at home in Northern Virginia, being a being an ordinary American. Well, there was a hell of a scuffle at the FBO between the billionaires and the millionaires, like gang war breaking out. So these are troubled times. Hey, just so to be clear, uh, I just want to state, just to be clear, my <laughs> my private jet had United painted on the side of it, and it was yeah, it was See, exceedingly Gibbs, Murphy, this is a, so characteristic. Murphy, being a still sort of hereditarily Republican, likes the idea that he flew a private jet and wants to make clear that he's in the millionaire class, though not the billionaire class. Gibbs, being a Obama Democrat still has to pretend that he's, you know, sitting there in coach on United. So that's fine. That's I was good. I was going to say window seat row fifteen. I was uh, <laughs> yes, okay. There I'm, you go, uh, comrade. Um, <laughs> I was not on a private jet. I flew the the elite jet called Jet Blue with the family, and then I was uh, victimized by the bankrupt but soon to emerge corporate titans of Hertz who wanted to uh, charge me $400 a day for a rental car at Logan. That is the biggest scam in the world. But we digress. The President of the United States 
uh, had planned to take quite the victory lap on COVID. I think he'd gotten a claim from almost all quarters. But now we're having a little COVID comeback. Nasty little bug called the Delta variant is back. There were some concerns that... Uh, you know, the president would be, be criticized for not reaching his uh, self-proclaimed victory line numbers by the 4th of July, which were not reached. Uh, do we think COVID, the, the political and politician killer, is going to be back to take away uh, the victory that I think the Biden people thought they had, you know, six, eight weeks ago? Or do we think this is the final speed bump along the line? And Gibbs, I'll let you start, and then, Bill, you should chime in. Yeah, I mean, look, I think if you read uh, what we've all been reading for the last year or so, th- there is a considerable cause uh, and concern for what we're seeing out there. This this variant, like the other variants, seems to be a bit more contagious um, than than the others. And and I think th- there are people, I think, rightly concerned, particularly as we get into the fall uh, and maybe the early winter, that you could see an uptick in this. I, I would say, from a political standpoint. We didn't hit the 70% mark of people that had gotten their first shot, but I think it was, I think the number was pretty close to like 67%. So two thirds of the country's gotten at least one shot. One shot uh, pretty much guarantees that that if you get COVID, it's not likely to be a severe case. The Washington Post had, um, I think Biden's approval rating for COVID at 60%, which you know, in, in, in modern political times, 60% is like 80. So uh, I think, all in all, he's got a good record and one he should be proud of. The concern that there are, the same polls show there's a good 30% of the country that has no desire to get a vaccine. They're, they're just simply not going to get it. And, and I, I, again, the, the doctors I read on, on the internet and, and, and stuff have, have kind of posited it this way, and I think it's a good way to think about it. Either you're going to get vaccinated or you're going to get COVID. That, that, that is essentially your choice. And I think that's the choice, Murphy, as you said, in the live free or die state, which, by the way, is like 80 percent, 80 percent vaccinated. Live free or die is also don't be a moron. That, that's in fine print. And they've done well up here in New yeah. Hampshire with the Republican governor, uh, Governor Sununu, leading the way. Uh, but, Bill, well, how, what say you, COVID master? What do you think about the uh, politics of COVID going forward since we're having a little bump here? I think the administration has done a good job. To the degree there's a bump, it's because people have refused to uh, have chosen not to get vaccinated. I think they shouldn't back off at all. Incidentally, though, on on, on vaccinating kids, assuming the medical you know evidence supports it, because I think that's important and would be reassuring to people who are still nervous, understandably, if if the kids haven't been under twelve, haven't been able to get vaccinated. Uh, so I'm I'm sort of a militantly pro-vaccination, and I think at some point, I don't think Biden should do this. The administration shouldn't do this. But third parties need to point out that. You mentioned the governor's in New Hampshire has encouraged, I think, people to be vaccinated and whether he encouraged them or not, they chose to. And that's good. New England has the highest rates generally. The Republican governors who aren't encouraging their citizens, the members of this, the people who live in their state to be vaccinated, should get a little heat, I think. If I were a Democrat in one of those states, I mean, I maybe it's unpopular. To, it's a, we're all libertarians, so people have the free, right of choice. And of course, there are some exceptions and people who have medical reasons and others for not getting it. But then I think there needs to be a little more heat on the elected officials who aren't and other let's just prominent people who aren't doing as much as they could to encourage citizens to do the right thing. There's been a certain, there is some 
deep down ideological hostility, obviously. It's been politicized in a terrible way. But there are also still people, I think, out there who are sort of hesitant and think it's not that urgent and they maybe they'll do it eventually when it becomes when the FDA makes it not an emergency authorization but a you know permanent authorization and all this and they the people who have any clout in those states whether they're governors or business leaders or educators or ministers in my opinion have a responsibility to urge their the people who might listen to them to do the right thing and if they're not urging people to do the right thing if governor Nome or something in South Dakota is busy doing idiotic you know, tweets on July 4th complaining about Biden's July 4th compared to Trump's July 4th, even though it turns out it wasn't really, you know, a video of Trump's July 4th. You know, maybe she could spend a little more time trying to help her, the people who live in her state, uh, avoid this this terrible disease. Well, she's fighting for freedom, Bill, via the primary circuit next year. No, I think you're onto something. I mean, I'll take it to the low politics immediately, and I know Gibbs will join in quickly on that, which is if I were the Biden guys, I would launch a little offense here. One, I would encourage the Red Cross or somebody who might have a little influence in, even a more politicized thing like the CDC, to start giving report cards. Governors start getting Fs, stuff that political opponents can latch on and, and pound on them with. Second, I would launch a big, flashy initiative. Okay, well, the morons are running slow on taking it. Uh, we're going to super speed the kid thing because we don't want to uh, close schools again. Or maybe once your state hits a certain threshold, we're going to release it en masse to kids. Faster the better for kids. Because the big fear out there is losing school again uh, in the family-aged adults cohort. And I think there's some things they can do to turn up the heat. And they ought to. You know, Max Boot has the greatest line of all. How can we live in a country where we actually have to pay people to take a miracle drug? And so I, I, think, it's time, I think it's time for the nice COVID uh, messaging to kind of turn into the tougher COVID messaging. And I think there's a good political opportunity for Biden there because I think he will get some bumps on Delta, but he can change the subject to coming soon for kids. And by the way, your governor gets an F. Now, the Christy Gnomes of the world will say, well, that's the fancy pants, four-year college degree, know-it-all Washington bureaucrats, which in Republican primary politics probably is a wash or a slight plus. But everywhere else, it, it'll hurt. It'll hurt with independents. It'll hurt with Dems. And it'll hurt with suburban Republicans, particularly those moms who are terrified of missing school if there's a comeback for their kids. And I, I agree with you on getting some heat. It'll be interesting. Biden speaks later today on this subject. And it will, I think people are watching to see understanding where the polling is and, and kind of the vaccination where, where we are with who's gotten their first shot and, and what we're seeing on a daily basis in terms of uptake on the vaccine. Will there be some sort of new strategy, right? We started with the mass vaccination. Now this is going to have to be very sort of individualized, almost like a door to door type thing. So it'll be interesting to see if there's a strategy change or a toughness in the rhetoric. I think it's also going to be to build off of Bill's point. I think it's up, going to be up to institutions to make some harder choices. Um, I, I have a son who's going to the University of Illinois uh, this fall to study uh, engineering. Uh, and I, I want to say this. I greatly applaud the university for requiring COVID vaccines for all of its returning students. And I say that both as somebody concerned about public health, but also uh, somebody who's about to pay uh, college tuition. I don't I don't want my son sitting in a dorm room with the library locked uh, for the next 12 months because COVID rears its head on, on a college campus yeah. and and they start canceling classes again and we get, go to Zoom class and all that sort of stuff. That's not the experience. To, to your point, Murphy, on on 
school closures um, for for all age kids. I, I think th- we're really going to have to have a concerted effort here because, again, I, I don't think this really is an either or. The either or is, you're, you, like I said, you're either getting the vaccine or you're almost certainly going to get sick. And, and you know, I, I it is remarkable that, that there are still people after having watched the last 15 or 16 months of their lives that are resistant to doing this. Again, I get some of the medical reasons for that, but I think that's very few and far between. Okay, I agree. Time for the stick. Now, moving on, of course, it's infrastructure decade. Feels like infrastructure century. The the Congress is off on recess, so the country is safe. But the number one issue is still this kind of, I don't know, I call it greed politics uh, of infrastructure. Because on one hand, uh, and this I'm 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 going to sound a little more partisan, but I think on this one the the grown up R's are right. We have the opportunity to do a big trillion dollar real infrastructure bill that'll create good jobs and help with competitiveness. And interest rates are low enough that even a debt hater like me can say, yeah, okay, maybe sell a few bonds at almost no interest rates to build better ports, bridges, and roads to compete with the Chinese and others. No brainer. My God, even our dysfunctional uh, politics looks like they're going to cough up over a trillion dollars needed infrastructure. But now. I think it's in real peril because uh, on the progressive side, they're saying all or nothing. You know, they've clearly read the leader McConnell playbook here and they're learning how to be obstinate. Uh, But it it could torpedo the whole thing. There's no way the repubs are going to bless a huge social spending uh, uh, bill in the billions after what we've already done for COVID and other stuff. So, Bill, we'll start with you and Robert chime in and et cetera. Where, where do you think this thing is going to go when they get back to town and, and, and we're running out of time and the numbers have to start going? Are the Dems going to stick, particularly in the House? Is Pelosi just bluffing to control her progressives, or are we going to be in two-track land? Because I think the Republicans will find it irresistible to throw a monkey wrench into that. You know, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's sort of fun to discuss it in the sense that it does remind me of like normal politics, interest group politics, partisan jockeying. Can you get Republicans on one bill, but then pass the other one in a partisan way? And it's sort of back to interest group pluralistic politics that are in fact are healthier than the culture war politics. Yeah, so in that normal, respect, yeah. if this, if this, yeah, if this gets them more back to debating <laughs> this kind of stuff might be a good thing. I kind of think Biden and the Democrats can pull off the two track. Uh, they're not going to give up and they should, can't really give up on reconciliation to do some things, obviously. Uh, and they want to pass some of it in a bipartisan way with Republicans, which I think is a good idea. And I think there's been some of the usual hiccups and two steps forward, one step back kind of stuff. But I actually think this thing is doable. And I think honestly, for both responsible Republicans and for the Biden administration and, and the Democrats, it's important to do it in this sense. Symbolically, it's very important. I mean, not symbolically, but politically, culturally, symbolically, you know, for the spirit of the country, it's important to have some bill, major bill signed by a president yeah. with, you know, some people from both parties there in a sense that we were, we both gave up something to work on it. If Democrats then have to go ahead and do reconciliation, I think that's fine. But I, I, I think it'd be good for the country to, I mean, I think it's probably mostly good policy, but almost more important than the po- narrow policy of what's going to be built is the kind of sense that we are getting back to something resembling normal politics in America. Well, just quickly, and then Robert can straighten us both out. What worries me is what the House progressives are saying, which is unless the Senate passes the larger bill, 
they will tank the infrastructure bill. But they can't tank the infrastructure bill if there are some Republican votes for it. Now, that's an interesting question. I mean, if McCarthy can rally 200 Republicans against it, then, of course, that's what gives the progressives the veto. I mean, the, the, uh, I don't know how much of a veto. Now, I do think, therefore, the you know 20 or 30 responsible Republicans in the House, members of this you know Problem Solvers Caucus and stuff, need to step up and say, you know what, we'll be there for this bipartisan bill. And then you could lose six or 10 progressives. Well, let me just say, let me take a little bit of a, uh, uh, I want to push back a little bit on what you said, Murphy, because I think you started with the phrase grown up Republicans are right. I, I think that's probably, <laughs> I, I don't know whether that's three or four in, in you your two, party. You got two of them on this right, show. Exactly, so, I mean, right? Yeah. yeah, we're down to two. No, I'd say in the House, you might get to a dozen with luck and a tailwind. I don't even know if you've, I mean, my question, even for the bipartisan bill, do you feel confident that there are 10 Republicans in the Senate right now? that are willing to vote for it. You know, the truth is, I think we're short a couple and it'll, it'll take, I think the twisting could be done, but it's not a done deal. You're right. So let's be clear. I don't think this is all just about progressive nervousness that is going to sink this deal. We should understand that there's, that out there lurking in the waters is the submarine Mitch McConnell with the torpedo doors open and the tubes flooded, ready to try to sink any of this stuff, right? And I think he will... I think what he will try to do is first he's going to try to just add time to the clock. The longer this thing goes, the less likely it is that anything yeah. happens, right? I think he understands that. He's run this play before. I think he actually also is probably he's a smart political tactician. I think he will drive um people to vote no while at the same time having some of his marginal uh, folks, some of the people that are up in, in 2022, giving them a chance to vote for this and to, to the point that both of you made to, to be uh, to, to show they can get something done in, in an important way in a Washington that feels for most of America to be very broken. I think where progressives are, I think I think, in fact, some of them are playing a very smart card here, and that is they are not they are not negotiating against themselves. Right. They understand and they've watched this happen before that if you start moving the goalposts closer and closer to where the deal ends up, that the other side is going to take that as, well, that's where the negotiating starts. And so I think they're I think they're going to be careful not to give up too much. I think the politics of this, though, in reality, there aren't six trillion dollars worth of votes out there on the Democratic only side for reconciliation. I'm optimistic that like Bill, that that Democrats can do this in a two-track way. I think if they're not too, um, if the system doesn't overload itself, I think you can get a bipartisan bill, which will be good for essentially both parties. And then I think Democrats will want um, to do reconciliation, probably for a number considerably less than the $6 trillion that, that some on the progressive side have put out there. And I think by the end of the year, you get both of those things done. But again, I think time is the enemy. You may be right, and I totally agree on time. But riddle me this. Here's where I bump on it. There is this premise, at least public, and maybe privately it's different, that this linkage is good for the Democrats, on the Democratic side. If I were them, I would slam through this bipartisan infrastructure deal, and I'd take all the credit for it, which a president can do. Biggest microphone in town. It's great for Biden. 
then pivot on the Republicans and say, all right, let's do some bipartisan stuff for the good of the country. And the Republicans say, hell no, we're not going to spend any of this. We go into green eye shade mode. And then the Dems can have the fight they want over new programs to have solar powered hover cars and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a fight both parties want to have. It would be good for the country to have an old school fight like that over philosophy of spending. But by linking it together, the Ds look like they're in disarray. And McConnell can see a method by which to sink infrastructure and blame the Democratic split for it. I just don't see the Democratic win in this linkage other than appeasing progressives. Now, I agree with Bill that if we can sober up 30 members of the House to actually vote for this and you know serve their oath, it would be great. But remember, the House Progressive Caucus has over 90 members. If 50 of them vote as a block on the, uh, on the rhetoric they're now saying, which they may just be setting up to be able to make a deal with Pelosi. But if you believe what they're saying, they have the power to sink the infrastructure deal over a, a, a crying rattle shake about we want our big lefty Bernie-esque programs, which is a win for the Republicans. So I just don't see the smart move of tangling this thing up with linkage when they ought to slam it, grab the credit, pivot, and fight. Well, again, I, I think probably if you're a member of the House, most of the time these big packages start in the House and then move yeah. to the Senate. And what has happened, and, and you know, you guys remember this all the way back to the 1993, you know, the gas tax, the BTU tax. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. You, you, you get these House members end up voting for stuff. It gets changed in a better way in the Senate. And then they're on record for having voted for something they didn't really like. Now, that's a little right. different than the scenario here. But again, I, I think for Democrats, look, for us to be successful as a party, we're all going to have to, one, it's a big tent. Two, there's only 50 votes in the Senate. So there's a there's a there's really a cap on what can get done. I think for Democrats to get this done, though, they're all going to have to hold hands and do this at the same time. I think it can be done. I think if there's anybody who can do it, her name is Nancy Pelosi because she's really, really good at this. Um, but I, I do think, you know, look, I, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, I hope progressives vote for the bipartisan deal because I think getting the bipartisan deal is actually the key that opens the reconciliation deal. If you kill, yeah. if you kill the bipartisan deal, Joe Manchin is not coming to save you with just reconciliation. He's made that abundantly clear. Um, but I will tell you this, if, if anybody is waiting on 30 Republicans in the house to do the right thing, exhale, because, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, I have a hard time seeing how that happens. I just don't think Kevin McCarthy I don't think he's going to let anybody um, really vote for the bipartisan deal. I don't. Th obviously, they're not going to vote for reconciliation. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think the 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 horizon for Kevin McCarthy is all that uh, all that long. Well, we don't know until you make them put up or shut up. Though I mean, thirty seven voted for the the commission, which he didn't want the January sixth commission. So I think you just. I, I basically in agreement on with both of you on this and and. The one thing I would say is, in general, and this very much applies to voting rights, which I'm interested in also, I feel like the Biden administration could use a little more LBJ, a little more kind of, maybe they are doing it behind the scenes, and I don't think Biden needs personally to look like he's doing it, but a little more arm twisting. And it's not inconsistent to both use that arm twisting for bipartisan victories and then use it for partisan victories. LBJ did both, right? The Civil Rights Act yeah. of 64. Now, if you don't find your Everett Dirksen, if it ends up, it has to be partisan, it has to be partisan. But we know in the Senate, there are people like Portman and Romney who want to be the kind of Everett Dirksen of this of this little story, and it's not quite of the same uh, significance, obviously. They, they do feel that they have to play out certain they have to 
be careful with the progressives. We saw this on, on the voting stuff where they felt they had to play out HR1 when it was obvious that was going nowhere, where it muddied the message in terms of the urgency of protecting the vote and preventing overturning of results, preventing election suppression. And instead, it sort of gave McConnell a chance to say, are you kidding that federal matching funds at six to one for donations under $200? You know, that helps a lot. Marjorie Taylor Greene, are we really, that's part of HR1. Or is that, that's like an urgent matter for us to do. And so I, I think they're now pivoting and there'll be a mansion focused, a uh, focused voting rights bill that Manchin presumably has, has outlined a little. They should add some electoral count X reform and stuff to that. But anyway, I do feel that there's a, I, it's easiest on the outside as, as Robert, you know, this so well, you know, and say, well, they should, you know, they have all kinds of pressures on them, but they need at some point to, to, to take a little more control of the debate. I think both on the infrastructure thing, on our voting rights, on a couple of other issues, and say, "Look, there's a lot of stuff we'd like to do. These are urgent." Now, for Republicans, if you want to oppose stuff that's urgently important for our country and our democracy, you go ahead and do it. But we're giving you an opportunity to come along. Progressives, if you are you seriously going to not support a, a narrower voting rights bill because you've sort of had dreams for 15 years of federal matching funds for, you know, for can for can for candidates? I think a little more toughness by the Biden administration uh, on their own party and against the Republicans would be, uh, might be a good idea. And yeah. Bill, my, my hunch is a lot of that is happening behind the scenes. Fair um, yeah. uh, um, because one, I don't think it's really Biden's style to, to call them out. And two, quite frankly, and we talked a little bit about this. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the media and the news cycle doesn't really conform to some of these big, big efforts either. And I right. think as administration, right. you have to be very careful not to react to every quote or every tweet. And if you strong arm too publicly, I mean, we saw that what, what happened when, and we're going to get to this in a second, when the vice president does some TV interviews in West Virginia, it doesn't actually help move Joe Manchin. It, it might've 20 years ago. It actually helped Joe Manchin stick where he was. Right. And, and so I do think there's a, there's a, a, a level of gas and brake to this that they have to be careful. I, I do agree with you, Bill, though. At some point, you can depend on on Speaker Pelosi, and she's great. Um, I, I think Schumer can 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 do a lot to get this done. The person landing the plane has to be the president in this case, uh, and and I I have a feeling that will be the case. Time to pay the meter, but we will be right back. Now let's hear from our sponsor. Is there anything that's interfering with your happiness? Is there anything that's preventing you from achieving your life's goals? Oh, how long do you have? <laughs> well, I've got some good news. Whatever that answer is, BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, this isn't a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and I know you're heading to Germany. So you can log on to your account anytime, send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. No more sitting in that uncomfortable waiting room for traditional therapy. Absolutely. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit their website and check them out. You can read testimonials that are posted daily right there. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash hacks. That's BetterHelp and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and our Hacks on Tap listeners get how much, Robert? What's our discount? 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash hacks. I just add one more thing about the House and we'll move on to the Veep. You know, uh, a wise Democratic House watcher a few years ago said something interesting to me that's kind of come back to haunt me as I watch this. I mean, the earlier, before I quote that, the earlier kind of uncovered big bipartisan win was this Chinese tech catch-up bill that went flying through the Senate with big bipartisan support. Now the House, maybe on an institutional basis, but I worry on an ideological one, is starting to screw with that. That should be a slam-dunk pass-it deal. But what this smart House watcher said is, you know, you repubs are funny. All your guys, or most of them, are from safe districts. They only care about primary voters. They don't have competitive elections, and they're kind of crazy and hard to deal with. Well, here's the secret. Most of our House members are exactly the same. They're from safe districts. They only care a little bit about primaries, and they're hard to deal with. They have just not found anything to have an unpopular fight over because all they've had to do is pile on on Trump, which is a political winner for them. You know, well, you guys are defending the indefensible. But one day there's going to be a vote or two where people get an idea of who was in the Democratic House caucus, and it's a mere image, more lefty than those, you know, beauties that you guys have. And I worry that that could be the sad story of, of this infrastructure bill from some of the hints I'm seeing, but I sure hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I think the pressure really is, look, th this is this is the counter says 2021, but this is also really about 2022. And I think, you know, you're not going to get the base out to vote unless you can prove that the Congress can do things uh, while you enjoy control, even if it's 50 votes in the Senate. So I do. This is why yep. I think in the end, Democrats have to link arms and go and jump all at the same time. And if they don't do that, then. Uh, it, it isn't going to end well, and it will be really hard to motivate the base. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So let's go on to the VP's office, because in Washington, there is a hurricane of conventional wisdom and cocktail party chattering and neurotic teeth grinding about, oh, my God, we've got a dud vice president, at least politically. You know, uh, Kamala Harris has been haunted by this. Many critics, and I was a loud one during her presidential campaign, kept saying, you know, she's not a very good candidate. But I was proven wrong. She she did she the campaign was a bit of a fiasco. Staff changes, falling polls after high initial expectations and a strong launch. So it it did end as a fiasco. A lot of us predicted, but she performed okay as VP. She was a better VP candidate, I will say, than primary candidate. Now we're having more staff trouble. We're having leaks. It's so un-Biden-like to the media about who's mad at who, the chief of staff or the staffer, that staffer. Some people saying it's all at the top. And the Washington kind of odds machine is calculating, oh, this is bad, this is bad. Now, Bill Crystal, 
You've been the chief of staff to a vice president. You know what it's like to kind of coexist under the sun god of the president with the presidential staff that probably sends you out for takeout food a lot, gives you the tough jobs. You lived through the famous potato incident when you were Quayle's chief of staff. Robert and I thought you might have a little, uh, looking back into the complete wreckage you made of, uh, we told you we'd give you shit about this, uh, back then. Uh, uh, but seriously, you, you lived through it. How much of it is institutional? How much do you think is her? How do you fix problems like that? Because I think my view is if she doesn't fix it, she's going to fall into the same narrative uh, in a different way, a narrative of political incompetence and staff trouble that Quayle, our friend, found him in after that ridiculous potato thing. You can't let the concrete set. So anyway, you're an informed observer of these things. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, as someone who failed to fix, if I can put it that way, Dan Quayle's unjust reputation after the campaign, which I wasn't involved in, in 88 when Benson sort of destroyed him in that debate. And um, I, I'm, I'm surprised the Vice President Harris's team hasn't reached out, hasn't called me to get advice on, you know, here I am, former Chief of Staff to Vice President Quayle. You'd think they'd want some <laughs> counsel on how to make it work, you know? They look back at other preceding vice presidencies and thought, you know, what's a model? What's something that really ended up great and that left left the the, the vice president with a with a great political future? And and somehow I have not, though I'm in cordial terms with many people in the Biden White House administration. I haven't gotten that call for for advice from from Vice President Harris's people. The um, you know, it's, it's it is weird. Obviously, vice president sees or it's the vice president is a weird institution. It, it, it the staffs never are always just a little jostling, a little bit of adjusting, and just hard to adjust. Honestly, if you've been a senator, I was thinking about this. I mean, in this respect, Quayle and Harris are in a slightly similar situation. Younger, much younger than their than the president, much more junior, you might say, than the president. The staff, much more junior than the president's staff, which in both the Bush and Biden cases were people who'd been with him a long time, were very senior people, Ron Klain, Brent Scowcroft, you know, not people who thought they needed to get a lot of advice from some, you know, kid working in the vice president's office who's, you know, doing his best or her best. And that was certainly our case. And I think it's it's Vice President Harris's team's case. It's not really like the other recent vice presidencies, which were either peers in a way, which have their own rivalries and their own problems, you know, Clinton and Gore, Reagan and Bush, or Bush-Cheney, which was sort of weird, where Cheney had much more experience than Bush. Obama-Biden, Biden had much more experience than Obama, but Obama was a superstar, so it was a little different relationship. So in a funny way, it is a little bit, I mean, I don't want to compare either way, Vice President Harris to Vice President Quayle, but structurally, it's a little bit similar. The much more senior president who uh, picked the vice president, uh, not knowing him or her terribly well, not a huge Even personal... having a history in the primary or something. No, not having, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, Quayle didn't run, obviously, but I mean, n- not a huge personal relationship there, I don't think. And again, and I do think, one thing I would say, having been in there is, of course, the thing you see on the outside is not necessarily at all what is actually happening inside. I mean, this is a pretty hard thing to, This is of all the black boxes, the VP presidential relationship is one of the blacker ones and people on the outside then make these cavalier comments about this person's out of favor or this person's messed up something. And you have no idea what's really happened behind the scenes and whether the White House didn't purposely give the VP something, which they knew was going to be kind of easy to was going to get messed up anyway because they wanted to keep the burden off the president. And you know what? That's fine, actually. You know, yeah, that's not, why they're there. You know, that's why you need they're a there, cleared. The there you President go. Harris, in All a good years. natured way, is willing to take more heat than she deserves, frankly, about the border or something or not going to the border early enough. That doesn't hurt Biden much in the long run. So I guess I'm very much, I, anyway, we had our own challenges with, with Quayle. And uh, I will say this that the, uh, the Bush people didn't 
and I don't blame them for this, go out of their way to help us, but they did have the attitude a little bit, you know what, if the media wants to obsess about Dan Quayle for the next three years, it's not going to matter in terms of 1992. And it didn't matter whatever we lost, but it wasn't because of Quayle. He did better in 92 than he'd done in 88. And I think this Biden people may have the same attitude to Harris with a slight difference that Biden being older, Harris is a little more, I, I think the one thing that I'm curious to know what you guys think about this, that feels different to me about this from the all the preceding kind of VP mini controversies is she's so much more the the next in line in the sense that people really don't expect or at least are, are very uncertain that President Biden will run again and even at his age, you know, whether something could happen, let's hope not. So, you know, there's a kind of scrutiny that she has and a kind of maybe a little more weight that's put on all this stuff that in our case and in the case of oh, Bush Cheney all this is more just gossip because everyone thought the number one guy was going to run again and there was no issue of that god of health or anything and so I, I wonder how much more attention that's causing and how much pressure it's putting on the staffs to handle these situations a little more uh, expeditiously we could sort of look at this and say well fine they can write an attack piece on quail who cares you know well, to your point exactly, Bill, I think it, the luxury of, of of letting the press kind of, you know, devour the vice president in the case of um, George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle just isn't an option, as you said, for for this vice president and for this White House. I think this is a bit of a danger Will Robinson moment, and I think it's something that has to be taken really, really serious because the, the narrative isn't just about, and, and Murphy, you touched on this, this isn't just about a few rumblings inside the last few months of the vice presidential uh, office. It does go back to the campaign, right? This is a, a candidate that started as high as anybody did, 20,000 people in Oakland for her announcement. She never made it to Iowa. She didn't participate in the Iowa caucus that night as as an active candidate. And so there's a line that gets drawn back. Um, and, and I have been struck by the fact that there are a, an increasing number of chattering stories. And look, Washington is is it's 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 the chattering story land, right? Of so and so in the West Wing is mad at so and so in the vice president's office. Somebody messed this up and they're really bummed they have to clean this up. There seems to be a bit more of that than normal or necessary. I was discussing these stories with somebody uh, last week and, and I said, I, I know in the press office I would be doing exactly what this press office is doing and that is pushing back hard against this narrative. Um, but I said to this person, I hope that the, the, the West Wing and the president's staff spends more time fixing the challenge and problem that exists than they do pushing back. Knowing they're going to push back hard, I hope that also means there's a meeting to figure out what needs to happen, right? What set of people do they need to add? I don't think it's necessarily subtraction as it may be addition. Who, who else do you need to get to help guide her? There's a perfect model. It's Joe Biden, right? That they understand the group that's there understands exactly as bill said how to deal with being overshadowed how to deal with being uh, not being in the top job uh, but also finding a niche of things give her some news to make go fill her calendar with events that actually make some news stop doing these round table events in washington with no news go drive an issue right they've given her 
you know, they've given her the border, which has vexed two presidents over the last, you know, or three presidents over the last 15 years. Uh, and, and they've given, um, you know, voting rights, which quite frankly is not going to get solved, right? It's a great base issue. It'd be great for Democratic Party dinners, but it's not going to get solved. Go give her something to make some news on. Politics abhors a vacuum. Go out there and fill her calendar with stuff that create news stories on the other side of this. But I will say this, close the door and figure out what needs to get fixed. What, what do you need to add to that operation to make it work better so that you get away from these stories? Because these stories aren't going away unless they get filled with another narrative yep. that takes her into a different place. No, the pushback is just tactics. It's a Band-Aid, necessary, but it doesn't solve the problem. I think Harris is kind of in a double checkmate, too, because one, every other major Democratic politician of her generation is hoping she fails because they want a competitive open seat race for president to succeed Biden. You know, there's a lot of ambition out there. And if she becomes the unstoppable Biden second or third term, then that is a problem for their own ambition. So, you know, her rooting caucus is is small. The second problem, and, and I think to their credit, the quail people navigated this pretty well, but when, when you guys took over, Bill, after, and I was around during all this, the 88 campaign, people forget, you you know, Quayle was getting terrific press. He had an issue set. You guys really did a good rehab job. But that also created tensions with the Bush staff because, you know, there's this cat and dog thing where the, the, the presidential staffer doesn't really like the VP to get a lot of tremendous press other than incredible VP supported brilliant president's amazing accomplishments. I mean, there was a perception even after the Obama presidency where, where, you know, I think Obama and Biden worked well. You'd know better than I would, Robert. But there was a perception during the primary that a lot of the former Obama staff were not for Biden. Mad about gay marriage where Biden came out first. And, you know, it could all be bullshit. But in D.C., that bullshit takes on a reality of its own if it's repeated enough. So the the Harris people have to, one, they have to fix any problem at the top if she's driving this, which I suspect because it's been going on since the day she announced she may be part of the problem. She's got to understand that and and labor mightily to fix it. Um, there are a lot of stories from the campaign about her sister getting involved. You know, if all that's going on, it's got to stop. And Biden, you're right. They've got to find a crusade that the Biden staff uh, will support for her to make the next 12 months of, you know, just an incredible time for her. And that is good for them. Uh, Cause otherwise the incentives will be to tear her down, to open up that job for the bunch of, you know, people who may be thinking about a primary. So it's a good test of if they can step out of the day to day and understand what everybody's interests are and make some real changes, or this is only going to get bigger as you both say. And now a word from our sponsors. You know, Gibbsy, as I said, I'm here in our secret hideout in New Hampshire. I'm living free and not dying, having a great summer with the family here. We're, like most people, doing a little summer getaway. And, you know, whether we're on a work trip, like I've got to go all the way to Germany and back for a few days, I'm going to have some fun there, even though I'm working. You know, you need to listen to stuff on the move. So my advice to you is, whatever you do, don't forget to take your Raycon earbuds with you. You know, whether you're jogging, whether you're vacationing, whether you're on an airplane, wherever you can be a pair of Raycon 
wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium audio brands. And let me tell you, Gibbs, a pair of these Raycons fell off the truck, as we used to say in Detroit here in uh, our podcast headquarters. So I've actually been using these things and I like them. They look great. They feel good. They come in a range of cool colors. I got red because I'm kind of a cutting edge guy. They even come with customizable gel ear tips. So you really get that perfect fit, which is so important with earphones. The best thing for me, other than the great sound, they have this charger pack you carry them around in and you can get about 24 hours of battery life out of them, which is really terrific. Worst thing that can happen is you're on a long flight and the things go dead and you have to go find a charging cable. You got to wake up the person. It's a nightmare. With 24 hours of power in the total kit that carries them, those problems are solved. So folks, listen up. Raycon's offering 15% off all of their products for our listeners. And here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon, that's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash hacks. There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. And it's such a good deal. You want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash hacks. You can even listen to us. Buyraycon.com slash hacks. I just don't think it is sustainable as a narrative for this White House to, to think, oh, those are stories in the other side of the building. We'll just, we just don't have to worry about them as much. Right, and I don't right. think it's just because she's the heir apparent, just because uh, if he doesn't run, she's by definition the front runner. I just think in, in a modern news environment, look, you know that what's going to happen is Biden's going to get asked about this. He's going to have very little patience for this question. He's going to snap. Um, at the questioner or at the question itself. Uh, and that will sort of perpetuate the story. Oh, the White House is frustrated with this, blah, 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 blah. You know, hopefully the, you know, that answer has been practiced and say, look, what you, what you all don't see in the chattering class is what I see every day. She's helping me make decisions. She's blah, blah, blah. All, all of those things. I think those will be important because at some point he's going to get asked and it's going to be fairly soon. But again, totally. give her some stuff to do that is substantive, that she can drive and make positive news on. Make some announcements. when they, The next thing they do on COVID, get her, get her out in front, not just standing to the side. So one problem is if the president himself, uh, and this was true of George H.W. Bush and true of Biden, you know, thinks, wants to work the hill and wants to really work ultimately the legislative process, which is good, there's not that much room for the VP to chime in. And she spent a lot less time in the Senate than Biden. Quayle had actually spent more time in the Senate than Bush, but Bush had been vice president, of course, for eight years. So he, he, he and Jim Baker and everyone knew everyone. So there's less interest in having Quayle take that role. We did a little stuff behind the scenes, more than a little in the Senate. But I do think for Harris, who's a good public spokesperson, what we were talking about earlier on COVID is an obvious thing. It's a little hard. She could be tougher than Biden. She could be the person who goes around the country and says, hey, we all need to get vaccinated and we need to do it for the sake of opening up, not for the sake of being public health, you know, not just because the science tells us, but we want to open. I mean, there's a very easy public 
bully pulpit message. The irony is the bully pulpit stuff's easier for a VP in a way because it doesn't then get in everyone else's lane. You're not suddenly, you know, the chief yeah. of staff's looking up, what's the VP up on the hill? I was, I have a meeting later in the, in the day and it's not the, and the various cabinet secretaries aren't slightly annoyed that the VP's edging into their negotiations on this bill or that bill. I, I think the COVID discussion we had earlier is a pretty obvious one, obviously, for, for the vice president to kind of go out, go out there and maybe at the beginning of the school year, maybe earlier though, and sort of really say this is important for the country uh my boss the president's done a great job of making the system work we produced all this stuff at the end of the day it's a free country that we got to persuade people to do this and i'm going to meet with yeah religious leaders and with educators but also with citizens around the country and go to states that have unfortunately low sign-up rates and so forth i don't know if that's the right one there are other things like that but you've got to think of things to do that don't step too much on other people's toes and actually do add something to the administration not not subtract. The final point, I just one last point I'll make on the on the VP thing. I always remember trying to persuade you. I had decent relations most of the time with most of the Bush people. Uh, sometimes they we've had falling fallings <laughs> out. Maybe that was my fault. I don't know. Oh, it, was, it, it wasn't Vice President Quayle's fault. He was he was a really loyal team player. But I remember trying at one point to persuade one of them. You know, we, we were more Reagan. The image was that we were more conservative, a little more Reaganite, friendlier to the Kemp types as well than the Bush Republicans, which is somewhat true. Uh, and so I remember saying, you know, that's good for Bush, not bad. You want to, you can't be everything to everyone. You want to have an administration that has people in it whom different parts of the party can look up to and say, hey, you know, I'm not so crazy. Maybe the president's a little bit too much this way. In Biden's case, maybe too too old school or too modern or something. But you know, there are people in there who are speaking to us. Very hard. Having said that, it's very hard to actually persuade a president's staff that it's good for them to have a little bit of visible dissent and visible different points of view in an administration. But again, that's where I think the COVID thing is a nice, uh, would be a nice platform that doesn't raise that problem. But having said that, it also wouldn't be so terrible if on something like voting rights, she were a little more, especially if she would go beyond the base and make it a little more about the election suppression stuff. Uh, She was AG of California. She knows something about this. Um, You know, protecting state officials who are doing their job. Meet with the Secretary of State of Colorado, who's a Republican, the Secretary of State of Washington, who's a Republican, and talk about it. Meet with Raffensperger in Georgia and say, you know, we've had God knows we're on different sides of the political spectrum, but these people did their job and we can't have a situation where state legislatures are now preventing them from doing their job and, and putting volunteers at election uh, in, 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 in polling sta- uh, stations at risk from harassment and so forth. I don't know if that's the right issue either, but there are things she could do that would, as, as Robert says, would, would travel around the country that'd be a little more granular than what the president's going to be able to do. I like the COVID thing. If she could own, we're going to vaccinate kids ASAP. Here's the plan and deliver it. And the other thing is she could be the hammer. There's not politically. It's totally in her interest to go rip DeSantis face off in Florida and pick a fight, you know, because that'll rally Democrat partisans to her side. You Christy Nome, all, you know, particularly in the red States is even easier, but she, uh, right. She needs a persona other than media bumbler and, uh, you know, fights are a good way to get there. It's just got to be the right fight. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. And now a word from our sponsors. Murphy, you know, growing up, I think one of the best things about being a kid was cereal. 
I loved it. I loved going to the grocery store. I loved looking at all the boxes on the aisle, picking out what was exciting. The downside was as you get a little older, like you and I are, you figure out they're full of sugar and junk. And quite frankly, a lot of stuff that you really just shouldn't eat. I'm trying to cut down on a lot of that junk, the unhealthy foods, the sugar, and I just can't eat that stuff anymore. I've been drinking protein shakes, but I have finally found a different way to get my cereal craving without all the bad stuff. Oh, tell me more because I love cereal too. I've been trying to cut back, but I'd love to find a cereal I could eat. Your breakfast doesn't have to be boring anymore because Magic Spoon is here and they have amazing flavors that you'll love without all the bad stuff. Well, as the official nutrition expert of Hacks on Tap, I've done my research. Get this. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. That's only 140 calories a serving. God, gives. we could get back to underwear modeling like the old days. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. So you can even build your own box. This is a great thing because they have so many different flavors. Or you can mix them up. So you either pick the flavor you like or do a variety pack with flavors like cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and my personal favorite, cinnamon. Yeah, you know, Murphy, pour me a little cocoa and a little peanut butter. Let's mix them all together and call it a healthy, delicious breakfast. Go to magicspoon.com slash hacks to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code hacks at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by Murphy, a hundred percent happiness guarantee. Wow. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash hacks. And don't forget, use the code hacks to save $5 off when you check out. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. So just quickly, Afghanistan's shutting down a year from now in the midterm elections. So, you know, a bit less than a year when they start. Will our leaving Afghanistan be a win for Biden politically? He ended the endless war, longest in American history. Or as we literally pack up the airport this week, will it flare back and be a problem? And will any voter care? I mean, I'm very worried about what's going to happen there. We have a terrific piece in the bulwark today by Will Selber, who's spent four but tours of duty over there, I would just, I, I think it's an un, totally unforced error in the sense that there was zero pressure to pull out the remaining 3,000 troops there. We haven't had a fatality there in 16 months, which is a very good thing. And, you know, there might have been, obviously, I, can't, I don't want to say this glibly, there could be some if we had stayed. But I think it's a very bad foreign policy error, both a political and moral error by the Biden administration. Having said that, I don't want to pretend that vote, there is a lot of a lot of people are going to be happy to get out or just relieved. Uh, and I think he'll, I don't know if he'll get credit for it, but I don't know that anyone will blame him much. Uh, uh, those of us who've tried to push back on this decision have had very, I wouldn't say we've had huge resonance in the public and uh, Republicans with Trump having professed the desire to get out so much and having started this process, which Biden has now continued, has made it harder for Republicans to sort of be do their normal thing of being the more hawkish party and so forth. Uh, look, I mean, I think President Obama's decision in 2011 Iraq was a terrible one. He ended up having to go back in in 2014 and to fight uh, the jihadists who had taken over part of the country and didn't do anything in Syria and the unbelievable disaster. I can't honestly say that he paid a political price for that, though. And uh, so, 
uh, and even Iraq, which was so difficult to war and fought so badly for the first two or three years at least, Bush got reelected in 04. So the, the ability of presidents to survive what outside observers might think of as poor decisions in foreign policy is, I guess, for a while at least, pretty great. So I'm, I'm very worried about what's going to happen in Afghanistan substantively, but I, I don't want to pretend that necessarily it's going to be a huge political issue for the Biden folks. I think there's some long-term risk in just sort of what happens in that area of the world, and that may even be a medium-term risk with uh, the Taliban deciding to uh, consolidate its gains in an even greater way and, uh, and, and control more territory, or as you've even seen an American general, um, you know, talk about the fact that you could easily have an Afghan civil war on, on our hands relatively soon. Uh, I think short term, the politics of this are probably still pretty good to get out of there because I think the biggest challenge, and this is on, um, I I accept some of this responsibility is um, having been in the White House, but, you know, we, we have, the American people have, have heard that we are, we are there. We're spending a lot of money and a lot of time. And, and uh, in some cases, tragically sacrificing our men and women um, because the idea was that, you know, if we just stayed there a little bit longer than these Afghan security forces with just a little bit more training and just a little bit more support would be able to uh, defend their country. And I think in reality, what happened was American presidents went often flying to, to Bagram uh, helicoptering to a, a presidential palace and quite frankly, always having really that same uh, agenda with uh, with the leader of Afghanistan, which is how come we're not making more progress? How come your people don't have, you know, to some degree, skin in the game in this fight? How come when the going gets tough, they get going? And and I think in reality, I'm I'm not sure Biden had to do this, but I'm not sure if we stayed there for another 20 years, it would be substantively different on the ground. I, I think this has got to be something that if the Afghans can't solve it, and we saw this when, 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 when Obama made the decision in late 2009 to surge more troops there, and, and it was actually the general suggestion that we put a time limit on how long they were going to be there. Because quite frankly, if you say said the Afghan leaders, we're going to be there forever, then there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of, okay, now we got to get our shit together. Um, And I think in this case, I think American presidents writ large sort of had had, this had kind of run its course. And it is going to be up to the Afghans to figure out whether or not they can provide security uh, inside that country. I'll bring it back down to the political hack craven level and just say as a matter of hard political reality, most Americans think an Afghan is a cat. They went to college. They think it's a blanket. I don't think it'll have any impact on the next election. But 15 years from now, when somebody's doing hacks on Jupiter, they're going to say, boy, nobody cared about Afghanistan, but they should have cared about Pakistan. So we're, we're, we're see where it unwinds. But there is something to say about owning it, and they sure do now. But just to be clear, having sat through uh, any number of good Situation Room meetings on that exact subject, don't misunderstand that just because you have um, pulled some of those forces out of Afghanistan that you aren't, there, there isn't a lot of focus still on 
on Pakistan and what happens there. Yeah, that's focused, but but they're not letting us. I mean, in fact, the surge which you guys did, and I give you, I supported it at the time. It was the one time I think I was invited to a meeting with the president in the Roosevelt Room in 2011, where it was like we we and incidentally, Republicans for all the partisanship supported that. McConnell supported it in the Senate, and Republicans voted in favor of it. I think more than Democrats did in the House. I know that President Obama didn't want to do it. I'm sure there was a lot of. Uh, regret and there were a lot of casualties god knows and sangin and elsewhere and it's very tough in 2010 2011 it did ultimately end up buying quite a lot of time uh which wasn't worth wasn't worthless you know pakistan hasn't blown up as everyone expected for the last 10 years afghanistan hasn't been a staging place for terrorism we were able to draw down to three or four thousand ultimately by 2018 or 19 and so I, I really just think that was that was sustainable the three or four thousand of the current situation, and I think the alternative that we're about to see is going to be worse. I tend to agree that it won't have an immediate effect. Though I don't know a real if you really get a Saigon seventy five type situation, if you get a destabilization of Pakistan, you, you know you guys have seen this in other administrations. I mean, foreign policy decisions individually don't usually you know voters don't focus. If if people have the general sense that the world's things are kind of falling apart in a bunch of places and we're not being strong enough that can have an effect and i don't you know i hope it's not the case for the country's sake that that happens i hope this is kind of confined and the effects of it are very limited but i'm pretty worried about this combined with some other things uh beginning to make it look as if all that relief that we have biden instead of trump that suddenly it doesn't look necessarily that the world is that much safer than uh, as much safer as, uh, as we thought it would be so let's talk about the appointment of Liz Cheney by Speaker Pelosi to the January 6th commission and the fact that Cheney took it and McCarthy's threatening maybe even to remove hers uh, from her position on the Armed Services Committee. I say hooray, hooray, hooray for Liz Cheney. It's an act of patriotism and she becomes more impressive to me every week. Uh, I'm there. I mean, we, I knew Liz well back back in the day. We drifted apart during the Trump years because she was willing to, of course, to to go along in many ways that I wasn't. And I, you know, she had a theory about how this would work and she had a theory of how to survive and how, for the, how the party and the country could survive the Trump years with the least damage, which was turn it into a parenthesis, limit the damage as it was happening. She did a couple of things to do that. Go along as much as you had to. I thought she went along too much, but, uh, and then it's a four-year thing. He'll lose and we'll have a healthy Republican party again. And that's good for the party if you're a Republican, but it's good for the country. So I, I, I want to give her credit. I think she had earnest, honest kind of, way of thinking about it. It wasn't my way of thinking about it. I think she paid too high a price. But anyway, when November 3rd happened, Trump lost, but then he fights the election results and then January 6th happens. I think that was the reason she pivoted so hard then, if I can put it that way, the reason she reacted so strongly is she did have a theory which depended on cabining, containing the Trump damage. And it was clear to her, especially, that this bet was not or at least whatever its merits for four years, it was not working now and going forward and she needed to step up. And all the others who made this bet promptly capitulated again. I give her a huge amount of credit, therefore, for sort of taking the implication of her own thinking and saying, okay, unacceptable, unacceptable now. And then she furthermore thought it through in a way that a lot of the others hadn't and said, look, if I'm going to be against Trump, what he did on January 6th, I'm going to vote for impeachment. I have to be against the big lie. I have to be against Trump going forward. I have to say that I couldn't support Trump in 2024. I have to say I couldn't support Kevin McCarthy in 2022 because he's leading a party that's enabling the big lie. She, in a way, took this much more 
in a much more fundamental way than 99% of even the other Republicans who had their qualms about Trump. So I give her credit for all that. Where, where it leaves her going forward in terms of the Republican Party is, of course, a massive question mark. But I think her accepting the, 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 the position on the commission, on the committee from, from Speaker Pelosi is very consistent with her taking this really seriously. Well, Robert, does it make a difference? Does it give the report any more heft or not? It's just inside Washington stuff. No, I think it does give the re- report more heft. I think she's, and look, she's, she's, th- this isn't just a PR thing for her. This is heartfelt. Just like uh, the Harris people aren't calling former Quail Chief of Staff Bill Crystal for advice, you won't be surprised that Kevin McCarthy is also not calling me for political advice, but I'm going to give it, it's worth exactly what Kevin McCarthy is going to pay for it right now. I'm going to give him <laughs> some free advice. Don't be a moron and kick her off her committees. If you want to make this thing bigger, then, you know, there's two things that are important here. One, (laughs) Republicans keep fighting this in a really hard way. If you are trying to hide something, then you don't want an investigation. And these guys are being pretty good at showing folks there's something to hide, right? That's one. Two, if you're going to take Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney's going to be able to call people as witnesses, right? How much would Liz Cheney enjoy saying, I'd like to make a motion that we call speaker-to-be Kevin McCarthy to testify about his phone call with Donald Trump under oath during the insurrection? Or all his phone calls to every member. Let's get the cell phone log and see who he was talking to. I'm going to actually replay this now. Kevin McCarthy, here's your advice. Kick her off those committees. Get her out of there. Yeah, make her bigger. Yeah. What started as a a spark has grown into a fire and it is going to grow into an inferno if he keeps doing this. And I will predict, because life imitates art, that of course, the stupid thing will happen because Trump is soon going to, he can't tweet anymore, so he'll just um, uh, bloviate on OAN or somewhere. But the word will get out that she must be punished for being such a traitor. She must be stripped from armed services, putting the fork on McCarthy, and who may then be forced to do the stupid thing he might have done anyway, making her bigger. And uh, again, circular firing squad, the new logo of the Republican Party. All right, let's play the music. All right, if you have a question for the hacks, you should send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. You can also send questions and insults there. But the real way to do that is go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, share us, add your comment. We actually read them, and uh, we appreciate hearing from you. And the more you rate us, the more the podcast is pushed out to other people, which we sure appreciate. Our ratings are up, and we thank you for it. First question is for Gibbs. This is from Patrick. Biden passed on linking a tax increase for the rich, listen up, Bill, and corporations to get GOP support for the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Now that that deal is done, why can't he, Biden, unlink the two and pass a tax increase as an independent issue? Or is he precluded from making taxes fairer due to the other deal, meaning the infrastructure deal? Gibbs, what say you? Well, certainly not precluded in any way from picking this up either as an independent deal or putting this into the second track of reconciliation that that we've uh, that we talked about earlier in the podcast. And look, I I think this is um, I don't think this is by any means simply taking it out of the bipartisan deal. I don't think by any means that Joe Biden is walking away from this. There's enormous popularity in greater taxation for corporations and for the wealthy. Uh, there's a reason that he ran on saying that. 
just as Republicans uh, wanted to lay the boogeyman of, oh, he's going to be tax and spend. He was happy to have that tax be on corporations and the wealthy. So this will be something that he will continue on. And I predict if it doesn't get passed, it'll be something (laughs) you hear a lot about in 2022 and 2024. So uh, it is uh, certainly not gone away. Yeah, it'll be part of the the next phase of this uh, waltz, and there'll be a lot of this talk between now and the midterm elections, where then maybe the power in the House will change if the Republicans take majority. Bill, this question comes from John. I'm going to read it verbatim because it's uh, it's worded quite well. What realistic path do you see the GOP ever coming back from the depths of dumbassery? That's a quote. <laughs> Why should I stay and fight from within? What does that look like? I don't know. I would only say that politics is hard to predict. And therefore, if people think they can do good by staying in the Republican Party, they should. If they think they can do better by helping uh, moderate Democrats and and, and responsible Democrats, they should do that. And they should also have the option of, in my opinion, as citizens, but even as uh, elected officials, think about uh, throwing their weight where it makes the most difference in any particular case. And honestly, I, I would act differently depending on the congressional district I was in, the state I was in, in terms of which part, you know, which party's having a primary that I can make a difference in. I live in Virginia, no party registration. You can vote in either primary. And I've tended to vote in Democratic primaries the last two or three times because I thought helping a moderate Democrat win in my congressional district or in uh, for governor in Virginia is better for the country than helping the kinds of Republicans we're seeing in the era of Trump. But I have no quarrel at all with other people saying, you know, I can make a difference here on the Republican side. And now I'm trying to help Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and others too in 2022. So we need decent people in both parties ultimately for the sake of this country. Uh, today we announced over at the Republican Accountability Project a Republicans for Voting Rights as an attempt to rally some Republicans, both for protecting voting rights, but also ensuring against election overturning by uh, uh, by, polit- by politicians, either at the state level or ultimately in the House, uh, in the Congress, a January 6th type situation, uh, not the riots, but the vote in the House on January 6th. And I think that's an effort. We'll see how many people sign up. You know, this is where I really, there's some parts of, of the anti-election suppression agenda that should be totally bipartisan, fixing the Electoral Count Act, which is from 1870 something, to make sure that people understand that Congress does not have the right to change an election result. They're just supposed to certify the, what the Electoral College in each state says. I mean, that should be bipartisan. And I think it will be a real test of how much of a Trumpy party it now is. Let me just interrupt to say, you're so right about that. Mona Sharon in the um, Bulwark, the publication, that you're an instrumental part of has a great article about this. I would encourage people to Google it because this is something that has not gotten nearly enough attention. It is a critical reform that, frankly, ought to pass 100 to zero. But go ahead. I just wanted to. No, no, that's it. So I think it's very much up in the air. If if there's a path back for the the public party, it would be healthier for this country to have two sound parties, not one authoritarian tending party and another party that you're then counting on winning all the time and you're counting on the better people in that party also winning dominating most of the time but you know you wishing doesn't make it so and i i respect people who have uh, decided we're going to be red dog democrats and we're going to try to help the become uh, help the Joe Biden Democrats be the future of the party. And I respect people who are staying and fighting in the Republican Party. Yeah, stay and fight and hallelujah on the bill. Murphy, here's um, here's one for you. Senate GOPers are shocked, shocked to find that Biden intends to pass a reconciliation bill after agreeing to the bipartisan compromise. Did they or do they have any intention of passing the bipartisan bill? Or do you think the plan all along was feign agreement with a compromise 
so they could tank the deal while pointing the fingers at Dems and the reconciliation bill. No, no. With all apologies to Colonel Renault, uh, they do expect gambling in the casino here. I think the Republican plan was to find an infrastructure bill they could peel off enough votes to get to 60, which means they need 10 repubs. I think they probably have close to that, but not quite enough. And pass that, and everybody takes some credit. Now, the hardest core Republicans are worried Biden will get most of the credit because he's president. And so on political you know, basis, being cynical, they, they probably hope it fails. But I think most of them were happy to do that. The problem with the reconciliation bill is if the House says, well, if it doesn't pass the Senate, we're going to tank the whole thing over here. Well, it's not the Republican job to pass the big liberal spending bill on other stuff. That's a, that's a good old-fashioned fight. Maybe they can find a Republican, too, if they pare it down. They got enough trouble getting Manchin on board, maybe Cinema, two Democrats. And there are others who have doubts about it. So good old-fashioned politics is what the reconciliation bill is about. You can't ask the Republicans to be responsible for passing a ideologically liberal democratic bill. It's like holding the Democrats hostage if they don't pass the Human Life Amendment. It's just unrealistic. So maybe there's a deal to be had on the other spending bill, more social welfare spending. There's some good things in there. But at the scale they've been proposing, uh, kind of a Bernie Sanders kind of scale, it's just a non-starter. So it's dangerous to link the two. Uh, I think there is cynicism alive and well in politics on both sides. I think the Democrats and the progressives are being a bit greedy, but they've got power they didn't have before, and they're trying to use it. That's understandable. Uh, the big problem will be getting the last two or three Republican bills to do the plain infrastructure bill and trying to require something else to pass with any Republican votes that's much more noxious to them than the infrastructure bill is a, is a fool's errand. And, you know, we talked about that a lot earlier. So it, it's not quite as cynical, Matt, as, uh, as you're outlining in your question, but thank you for it nonetheless. And with that, guys, it was great to have you here, Bill. If people want to check out what you're up to, what's the website? People should obviously read The Bulwark at thebulwark.com. The best writing around these days. They can come to, they can watch conversations with Bill Crystal, on which both of you have been, on which both of you have been guests and, and excellent guests. And we have a good one up right now with Sean Trendy, the election analyst, very kind of nonpartisan, honestly, uh, attempt to just analyze where we are. Uh, and with many more uh, conversations coming up. Um, and uh, what else should you go to? And then Republican, uh, the Republican Accountability Project with this new Republican voting rights, rvr.org is, uh, I don't even know. Google Republican voting rights, you'll, you'll find <laughs> yeah, the right. Yeah, you'll find the right, you'll find the right website. Kids in that internet with all the dots. And I know, the it's so confusing how this internet works. You know what I mean? Websites. and uh, Okay, and Gibbs, we can't talk about it, but soon Gibbs and I have a world-shaking announcement. I'm talking galactic. I'm talking world capitals and high alert, people sliding down ladders, sirens going off, ships crossing at high speed with naval ensigns flying. A big, big Gibbs and Murphy announcement coming soon. Maybe next week, maybe the, the week after, but stay tuned for that. All right, Gibbsy, why don't you take us out? It was great to talk to you guys. Yeah, great to see you, Bill. Thank you for your insight and your perspective. It was great being with both you guys. Safe travels. Thank you. Talk soon. 